0: Well, for the, I'm excited to preach today. I'm, look, I'm just, I'm glad to be here. It's great to be with you. I, I told, uh, Matthew and Megan this morning when I come, it came in that I'm, I'm, I'm doing great. I'm excited. I'm, I'm eager about what the Lord's doing in our church. I'm, uh, I'm proud of many of you for the way that you've responded and, and even, even just the way that even if you you're not sure about this whole baptism thing, even the way that you're wrestling with it and searching the scriptures, I, I'm proud of you and, and even the fact that that we are, um, united and that there's, there's, there's unity happening. I'm, I'm very excited. Um, and because of that, for the next few weeks, we're gonna continue kind of to, to change things up from where we've been. We've been preaching through Matthew. We're gonna do a little bit of a change up now. We finished our membership series and, and now there's, for at least for me, there's 83 membership interviews Um, to do, at least to the best of my knowledge, as of now, I still've got, we've got 83 membership interviews to do. 86 people signed up formally to commit to serving together as Grace Bible Fellowship. And, um, because of the, the baptism message and all that, that's kind of been going on with that, kind of answering questions and counseling people and meetings with that membership interviews, um, this week I was able to begin my sermon, working on my sermon, kind of late Saturday morning. So um, I, I think the next three to five weeks are gonna be the same as that. There's gonna be a lot of, of pressure, a lot of different time that's that's needed to to go into the the shepherding part of the ministry. And uh and that means I need to in the next few weeks I need to preach something that I've already studied, something that that um that I can just write a sermon on Saturday morning and kind of be ready to go. But also in that, I, I want to preach something that's going to be helpful for you as well. And really, there's there's two things that I want to cover. And, and so as I kind of made the decision to, to go through Ephesians 4 here, um, two things that I want to cover. One is the doctrine of church discipline. And really, in a, a membership series, we really should cover what you're kind of entering into in regards to the reality of church discipline, what it is, how it will be practiced, what does the scripture say about that. And so that's something that really should be covered. And so we're going to do that. The other thing that I wanted to cover is this text in Ephesians 4, 5, which comes up so often in regard to baptism. Ephesians 4, 5 says there is one Lord, one faith, one Baptism, and so I wanted to cover that text as well because so many have asked questions about that. And so what we're going to do is over the next few weeks we're going to do a mini series through Ephesians chapter four and chapter five. Um, I think Lauren's probably right that we'll go to four five fourteen, but we could go to maybe to five like twenty one, maybe um, if we need to. So we'll kind of we'll kind of see how long this series needs to be. I I am eager to get back into Matthew, but for the next few weeks, we're going to do this series on the Worthy Walk. And it's also, as we kind of do this, we're going to cover the importance of church unity. And I think that's really something that's going to be helpful for our church right now as well. So let's look at our text for this morning. It's Ephesians chapter 4, 1 to 3, but I want to start reading in Ephesians 3, verse 20, and we'll read all the way to the end of verse 6 of chapter 4. So let's read here Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 20. It says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One faith, sorry, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And so Paul's prayer in 3.20 is that God would be glorified in the church and in Christ. Far beyond all that we ask or think. And so how do you think that is going to look? How is it going to look when God is glorified in the church and in Christ Jesus? How would the power at work within us bring God glory in the church in other words, what in your mind would really show the goodness and greatness, the glory of God? You know, I, I could think of a few things if I'm thinking about what's going to glorify God in the church. Maybe a, a revival, maybe, um, you know, numerous conversions in the church, people crying out, asking God to forgive them of their sin. Maybe a, a sense of God's presence in our services. Maybe that would really glorify God and the power of God would be in the place and we would all know that God was here. Or what about maybe a, a renewed commitment to missionary endeavor, a renewed commitment to bring the gospel to the nations. But those are not what Paul thought of first and foremost when he turns to chapter four of Ephesians starting at verse one. And maybe it's perhaps not what we would expect when we think about how is God gonna be glorified in the church? What, is, what does Paul envision when he envisions that? And what he actually envisions is, is what we what we're gonna look at here. I called this sermon, I called our message this morning, the worthy walk, preserving the unity of the spirit. And we're gonna see that in verses one to three. And, and what we're gonna see is we're gonna see six requirements. For a life worthy of God's calling. That's what we're going to see here. Six requirements for a life worthy of God's calling. These are things that are going to bring glory to God in the church and in Christ Jesus. And what comes to the forefront in this passage is the incredible importance of our relationships with one another. You see, there's no such thing as a worthy walk that's done in isolation. The way that we glorify God is by living together in harmonious relationships with one another. And this will show us as Christians how the Lord wants us to walk or really how the Lord wants us to live according to the power at work within us that we saw in verse 20. And what is that power that's at work within us? Well, it's the power of God in saving us It's the power of God in making us alive with Christ. It's the power of God in creating us anew as new creatures in him. And so really it's the power of God in our regeneration. And the power of God in our regeneration enables us to live in harmonious relationships with one another. And so if you want to please God... And if you want your life to bring him praise, and if you have a desire to be used of him according to his word, then these six requirements this morning are going to be for you today. And the first requirement of a of a life worthy of God's calling is knowledge. And so number one in your outline, a worthy life requires knowledge. And when I say a worthy life, I mean a life worthy of God's calling. And we're going to talk about what that is in a minute, but a, a worthy life requires knowledge. And that might be a bit of a surprise, even right off the bat knowledge. What is Paul getting at? What are we getting at? What are we to know? What are we to know? Well, the text says in verse one, I therefore, and when Paul urges us to walk worthy of the calling, he, he urges us to walk worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And that word there, urge, is, a, is really a strong word. Paul is urging, he's imploring, he's exhorting, he's beseeching the Ephesians, and, and by extension, he's, he's beseeching, imploring, exhorting us. And he's really pleading with us as Christians to walk worthy of our calling. Now, I think we know what this word worthy means, but it's really a, a unique word. It's really an, a very interesting word. In Luke 10 and verse 7, Jesus says, the laborer deserves his wages. And it's the same word there. The laborer is worthy of his wages, Luke 10, 7. See, the worker, a a worker, an employee deserves to be paid for his work. And there should be a correspondence between the work that's done and the pay that's given. And so when something is worth what you pay for it, it's it's worthy of the price, and so then there's a, a balance between the value of a thing and the price that you pay for that thing. And so this word in verse 1 translated worthy originally meant to bring up the other end of the scale. To bring up the other end of the scale. And so you could kind of imagine you, you've got one of these balance scales, you've seen those before. And if you if you've got a measure of flour, you're gonna buy a measure of flour, you put the measure on one side of the scale. And then you pour flour on the other side until the, the one end was brought up so that both sides of that scale are balanced. And when both sides of the scale are balanced, they were worthy of one another. The, the measure and the amount of flour equal one another. And so there's an equivalence, a correspondence. One side is worthy compared to the other side. And so what Paul is urging here is that we live in a manner that is equal to our calling. You see, he wants to live, uh, he wants us to live in such a way that there's a a balance between what God has done for us in our salvation and how we live in our day to day lives. And especially how we do this in relation to one another. See, there's a, a constant battle for the Christian. The constant battle of the Christian life is really to be who we were created to be. When we were created anew in Christ, we need to live up to the standard of our new birth. We need to grow into the full image of Christ that was imprinted on us in our regeneration. And so we need to bring up the other end of the scale. That's what Paul's calling us to do. And, and, and the end that has to, and the end that has to be brought up is the end that has to do with our practical day to day living in this sinful world as Christians. But in order for us to live up to that, we have to know what's on this side of the scale first, right? He wants us to live up to this thing that he calls our calling. And the first three chapters of Ephesians explain our calling, the calling to which you have been called. And so if we don't know what's on the other side of the scale, then the question is, well, how can we walk worthy of it. And so we need to begin with some knowledge. Now, normally when the New Testament speaks about calling, it speaks about a call that we call the effectual call. And that's what Paul has in mind here, this calling to which we've been called. This is a call that brings a person to spiritual life. It's a call that that kind of corresponds with what happened in Acts 16, 14, when this woman named Lydia heard the preaching of Paul and the Lord, it says, opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The, the Lord opened her heart and this is a picture of this calling that brings someone to spiritual life. In 1 Peter 2, 9, Peter says that, that we were saved that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so we're talking about a call that brings somebody out of spiritual darkness And brings them into the marvelous light of God so that they now proclaim God's excellencies and become worshipers of him. This is a call that that Jesus is referring to in John 10.27 when he says, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And why do Jesus' sheep hear his voice? Why does he know them? Why do they follow him? Well, it's because in verse 29, Jesus says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. And so Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's kind of the idea of calling. There's this call of God that goes forth and it causes people to respond to the gospel in repentance and faith. In 1 Corinthians 1.9, Paul says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so we're talking about a calling that brings somebody into fellowship with Jesus Christ. In Romans 8 and verse 30, Paul says, And those whom he predestined, the people that God predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so calling starts in eternity past with God's decision and then in time, there's this calling that happens that results in justification, which means that it it produces faith somehow so that the person is now justified by faith. And that calling also extends all the way into eternity future, where the person is also going to be glorified. And that's the call that, that Paul's talking about here. It's really a, a call that brings somebody into salvation. And to put this into the language of the book of Ephesians, it's a powerful call of God the Father on par with the power which he worked when he raised Jesus from the dead, which made the spiritually dead sinner alive with Christ. And so if we look at our text again this morning, it says again the word therefore, and therefore... I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you are called, therefore, points back to all that Paul said in the book of Ephesians in chapters 1 to 3 about the believer's calling or about the believer's salvation. And so what I want to do is I just want to kind of briefly scan through Ephesians 1 to 3 and I want us to look at what's on this side of the scale that we're supposed to live worthy of. And it starts in chapter 1 and verse 3 with worship, where Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so the believer is blessed with every spiritual blessing. And then Paul starts to list some of those when he says in verse 4, Even as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. These blessings include in verse five, where God the Father predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons, and so it includes adoption, it includes predestination, it includes being brought to God as sons through Jesus Christ according to His will. And this results in the glorious um, God's grace, God's glorious grace being revealed in verse six. That that is is a, a thing that causes us to worship Him. Verses 7 to 12 speaks about what the the Son has done. And and, and so verses 4 and 5 and 6 talked about the the blessings that we have in the Father. And now Paul switches in verse 7 to speak about what we have in Christ in the the Beloved from verse 6. And we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. In verse 8, he lavished on us all wisdom and insight, making us know the mystery of his will. And the mystery of God's will is that all things are going to be united in Jesus Christ and all things are going to be restored through Jesus Christ. And we know that as believers. And then verses 4, 13 and 14 speak about the work of the Holy Spirit in our salvation. We were in him also when you heard of the, the word of truth, the gospel of salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it to the praise of his glory. And so we see these are some of the spiritual blessings that should cause us to worship for what God has done for us in our salvation. And then Paul, starting in verse 15, he prays for the Ephesians that, that the, the Father would give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. So Paul's praying that that God would open their eyes to see and know the one true God in greater ways. And when they come to see and know the, the one true God, they're going to know a few things, starting in verse 18, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And so Paul is praying that, that the Ephesians would have this insight into who God is, that they would know the power of what God has done for them in their salvation. And that's just such a great verse in verse 19, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, which is according to the working that he did when he raised Christ from the dead. And then Paul goes on to describe what he did when he raised us from our spiritual death in Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. And I think we've looked at this passage so often together, but in Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, the Ephesians were dead in their trespasses and sins. But then in verse 4, because of the, the riches of God's mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, he made us alive together with Christ. And that's what it means to be saved by grace. And he raised us up with Christ and he united us with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places. And then again in verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. And then again in verse 10, you are we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so we are new creatures in Christ. This is part of our calling. And then in Ephesians 2 and 11 and following, Paul talks about another part of our calling, that in our calling, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. And in Christ, verse 13, you who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself, the Lord Jesus Christ himself is our peace. And he himself has united us, look at the end of verse 15, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. And so we've been joined into the one body of Christ in our salvation. We've been joined with Christ and we've been joined together with everyone else who's joined in Christ. This is part of our calling and our salvation. And because of this, because of this peace that we have through Jesus Christ, look at verse 18, through him, we both, that is Jews and Gentiles, every saved believer for through Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the father. And so our salvation unites us with the father. We have access to the father because of this calling with which we've been called. And then in verse 19, we're part of the household of God. In verse 20, we've been built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. We are a a building that God is building. In verse 21, we're this temple that he is building. In verse 22, we're this dwelling place of God by the Holy Spirit. And all of these things are, are part of our calling. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And then in chapter 3, Paul begins to to, to break off. And he says, for, he says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And then he breaks off there and he talks even more about the church and how God has made him an administrator of the church and how his ministry is to kind of let everyone know about the church and that through the church, God is going to be glorified. So that in, if you look at chapter three and verse 10, so that through the church, The manifold wisdom of God might be now made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. In other words, God is going to be glorified through the church. And then again, Paul prays in verse 14, and he prays that, that again, that, that they would understand all of what God has done for them in Christ, that they might be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith a great passage there. But again, Paul prays that the Ephesians would understand all that God has done for them in Christ. And so what Paul is saying then when he comes to chapter four and verse one, and he says, therefore, I urge you to walk worthy or in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. What he's saying then is take all of that power Take all of those blessings that you have in Christ. Take all of those riches that you have, access to God and election and justification and forgiveness and, and uh, the, the, the Holy Spirit lives in you and all of this blessing and riches and, and take all that is yours in Christ and begin to live according to them. I want you to walk worthy of your calling. Now, this is not an option. This is not a suggestion for really committed Christians. This is a command. Walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called. This is, this is God's purpose for your life that you would walk worthy and glorify Him in this way. And there's really a sense of urgency and authority as paul says i therefore a prisoner of the lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called again this is the very purpose for which you were saved to glorify god showing his greatness by walking in line with who you are in christ and Paul is the one who is entrusted with these truths and he's passing them on to the Ephesians and, and he's even suffering in prison for this. And now he's urging us to take all of these blessings and all of these truths that he's taught the Ephesians in verses chapters 1-3 to 3, and he's urging them to live them out by the power of God in their lives. Now, when we think about this, I, I think we we often kind of get this wrong when we counsel one another and and minister to one another because it's it's easy for us to just kind of say, well, be humble, be gentle, diligently preserve the unity of the spirit. We can say, glorify God. We can say, and we should say that we should do everything as an act of worship to Jesus Christ. But but we can do that without taking people and and, and taking the time to show people what their calling is, or telling them about the power of God towards them in their salvation or teaching them that there is a a unity of the spirit that's already accomplished for them to diligently preserve. And we can do this too, unlike Paul, without praying for the people that we minister to and and, then praying that they would really grasp the teachings of who they are in the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he has done for them in their salvation. You see, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of what he's done for us in our salvation is really crucial if we're going to urge people to walk worthy of it. And I think many of us would just kind of skip chapters 1 to 3 and just say, here's what you need to do, just walk this way. But Paul doesn't do that. He first shows them all of the greatness of their calling. Now, maybe even as I've been thinking about this, you know, maybe that means I should have preached through Ephesians chapters 1 to 3 before I came to chapter 4. Um, but that's why we just did that little brief kind of walkthrough of what's there. Maybe one day I will preach through Ephesians 1 to 3. But we need to kind of help people understand the one half, the foundation. We need the foundation and we need the exhortation, right? We need the knowledge And we need the urging of people to live up to that knowledge. Now, another thing that I want to say as we kind of transition to the next five requirements of a life worthy of God's call is I want you to notice again how relational these requirements are. Notice how relational, in fact, everything that we're going to look at in Ephesians 4 and 5 and all the way up to, to chapter 6, verse 9, it's all relational things. If uh, The worthy walk, the walk that is worthy of our calling, again, means living in harmonious relationships with one another. That's how we glorify God in the church. And every one of these things that we're going to look at today promotes unity, promotes harmony, promotes relationships with one another. In other words, a life worthy of our salvation is a life of wonderful, God glorifying fellowship with one another. Now, before we go on, let's just note a few things that Paul does not say here. Paul does not say, walk worthy of your calling by selling everything and becoming a missionary. He doesn't say walk worthy by giving tons of money to support the work of the ministry. He doesn't say walk worthy by spending your days and fasting and prayer. You know, you could fill in your own blank of what Paul doesn't say, but the, it's, it's, I think it's important to realize this is what is first and foremost on Paul's mind of what makes someone in his mind really spiritual and what makes somebody gl- live in a way that glorifies God. And it's first and foremost this relational aspect. Not not that there's anything wrong with any of those other things, but this is what is on Paul's mind when he thinks about glorifying God in the church. Most ultimately, when Paul thinks of a worthy walk, he thinks of good and godly relationships within the body of Christ. And he thinks of maintaining the unity of the Spirit, as we're gonna see. And so, That was number one, a worthy walk requires knowledge. Now let's go number two, a worthy walk, a worthy life requires all humility in verse two. Look at chapter four and verse two, he says, with all humility, a worthy walk requires all humility. Now, humility means to have a low or a modest view of one's own importance. That's from the Oxford English Dictionary. Now, biblically, we might maybe want to say that it's to have a real or a proper view of one's own importance. And a humble view of ourselves would recognize that we are created beings made by God. We are his creatures. And as creatures, we are dependent on God. A humble view of ourselves would see ourselves in light of the majesty and the greatness of God. You see, how important are your opinions or my opinions and ideas and interests in view of the interests and purposes of God? You see, pride says, the opposite of this says, I'm important. I desire to be heard. I deserve to be heard. And things ought to be done the way that I think they ought to be done. Pride says, my opinion is right. Right. Pride says, maybe not so vocally as this, but pride thinks, I don't care what others think. You know, who are they anyways to set a direction or to lead or even to have an opinion in this situation? Clearly, I am the one who knows how things ought to be done. And nothing promotes disunity like pride. On the other hand, nothing promotes unity in the body like genuine humility. See, the humble are willing to lay down their interests and preferences for the sake of others and for the Lord. Philippians 2.3 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Count others. In humility count others more significant than yourselves. An important passage in regard to humility is James chapter 4. And maybe why don't we just go ahead and turn there. Go to James 4 and look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse 7 says, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Well, the opposite of this is pride, which resists God and ends up submitting to the devil. But God, it says, resists the proud. And so if we're walking in pride, God is resisting us. And how can we glorify God without his grace? Because he gives grace to the humble, but there's no such promise for the proud. How can we glorify God if he's actively opposing us? And so if you have a higher opinion of yourself than you ought, God is resisting you and he's resisting your works. God humbles the proud and exalts the humble. And the humble person is a person who depends on God. The humble person is a person who trusts in him and obeys his word. And that person will receive from God enabling and empowering grace. Whereas the proud will receive humbling opposition. Even if the fullness of that humbling opposition won't be seen until the judgment day, this is a a characteristic of God. He resists the proud. And so when you think about that today, just which side of the equation are you on? Which side of the equation are you on? Now this principle is important in regards to spiritual leadership. Jesus says in Matthew 23:11, "The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted." And so God wants to lead. God does lead through humble people who trust him and depend on him. And those are the kinds of leaders that the church needs. People who are kind of in line with what we see in Isaiah 66 verse 2, where it says, where God says, the Lord says, the the high and lofty one says, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. That's the kind of humility that God wants us to have, a, a humility that trembles at his word. See, biblical leadership is not for people who have exalted themselves above others, but for humble people who have developed convictions from God's word as they seek to follow him and obey him. And a worthy walk, a walk that corresponds to who we are in Christ is a humble walk. It's a walk according to Paul with all humility. And according to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 9, we were saved by grace so that no one may boast. And so our salvation itself was designed so that no one would boast and then we should continue to walk with all humility. The third requirement for a worthy walk is in verse 2 as well and it's a walk with all gentleness A worthy walk requires all gentleness The word all there modifies both humility and gentleness Now some of the older translations use the word meekness Which is which is a, a, a fair translation Although maybe it's not as good of a translation in our day The word has to do with mildness and, and gentleness The opposite of this word would be roughness and in Greek, this word kind of spoke about somebody who is angry at the right time. Somebody who had the, the right balance between being angry all the time and never being angry. It's kind of a, a funny way to think about it, but that's, that's how the Greeks used the word. In other words, this gentle person is a person who is in control of their emotions, and their desires don't drive them to anger easily. They're not, they're not utterly passive. There's, there's times when they're angry. There's times when they're passionate about things. They're not utterly passive, but, but neither do they fight to get their way. That's the picture of this gentle person. A gentle person like a humble person that has consideration for the interests of others. And they're willing to waive their rights for the sake of others. Now we saw the, the, the adverb form of this word when we looked at Matthew chapter five where we saw the, the word meekness there. It is translated meekness. It's kind of the, the brother word. And at that time I, I used an illustration about a wild horse and you can picture a, a wild horse, a, a, uh, do they call them a stallion? I don't. I don't know enough about horses. But a, but a, a wild horse, and it, and it's it's unruly. It's powerful. It's going to kick you in the head if you try to come near it. If you jump on it, it's going to buck you off. But but if you could could tame that horse and bring it under your control, and you put that bit in its mouth, and and you get it so that that powerful horse could have a child ride on it, and and its power is still the same. It still is strong, but it's now under control. And that's a picture of the meek person. All of their power is still there, but, but they're now gentle and, and that power is under control. And this kind of control of one's life is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5.22 says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness. That's our word. And self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Now, the opposite of this gentleness is roughness, harshness, a person who fights to get his or her way. A harsh person is easily angered. And it, it doesn't take much to set them off, kind of like a, a bomb, it just, just a little bit and boom! A rough person tramples others because really they only care about themselves and their desires and their wants. Now, obviously, that's not how we are are to walk as saved people. We're not to walk in roughness and harshness. We're to walk in gentleness. And gentleness comes as we grow to love God and learn to worship him above the competing desires in our life. And so we're able to put God first and foremost in our lives, and we don't fight for other things. Gentleness is a key characteristic for someone that God is going to use to restore people who are caught in sin. Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. There's our word. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And in a case like this, in, in restoring somebody who's in, in caught in a transgression, the person who is gentle is going to have the right balance of strength. They're, they're, they're going to be firm. They're going to confront the sin, but they're also not going to be so strong that they crush the sinner. They're going to be able to restore him in gentleness. And that's the idea. This trait is also an important one for spiritual leaders. Second Timothy 2.24 says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness then it says, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they might come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been captured by him to do his will. And so that's gentleness. A fourth requirement of a life worthy of our calling is patience. Still in verse two, a a worthy life, number four, requires patience. And it says there, just simply with patience. Now that word patience is macro And it's a compound word built from, from the words macros and thumos. Macros and thumos. Now you can kind of hear the, the similarity between the English word macro and macros. And both macro and macros mean a, a long time. The Greek word thumos is the word for anger. Or rage, And so the idea to walk in macrothumos or macrothumius, it means to, to, to take a long time to make this person angry. And therefore, they're, they're patient or long-suffering. It, it takes a long time. It takes a lot to make this patient person angry. And the opposite of this is somebody with a short fuse. You've kind of heard that expression, a short fuse. It's just a... Sh-pow! You know, it just doesn't take much. Just the there's not very long, and a, boom, that guy is angry. You know that that's that really describes me in my in my early even Christian life. Hey, hun, just looking at me smiling there. Short fuse. Other synonyms of of this macrothumius would be would be patience, steadfastness, endurance, forbearance. The word is most often used of God's patience with us. One commentator described it this way. He said, um, patience, quote, is that long-suffering which makes allowance for other shortcomings and endures wrong rather than flying into a rage or desiring vengeance, end quote. The opposite of patience, again, impatience, a quick fuse, an angry spirit, someone who punishes others for their shortcomings and sins. An impatient person will not allow the necessary time for others to learn and grow. They want it right now. They want immediate results. But such an attitude is inconsistent with our salvation. That's what the point of this passage is. God was infinitely patient and perfectly patient with us. And he didn't punish us the way that we deserve. But while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And God was patient with us until he brought us to himself, until he called us to himself by his spirit. And until he saved us through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who paid the penalty for our sins. God was patient with us in our former life until we came to repentance. And he is patient with us even now as he works in our life to grow us into the image Of our Lord Jesus Christ, He is patient with us as we fall short. And when we think about patience, I I think it's helpful. Maybe let's go back to the book of James, and I want you to look at James chapter five as as an illustration of patience. James here is talking about being patient, us being patient until the Lord returns. Whereas Paul in our text is talking about our need for patience with one another, but, but look at what patience is like as we look at James 5, starting at verse 7. He says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand, Do not grumble against one another's brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door as an example of suffering and patience, brothers. Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And so James wants us to think about patience. He says, think about the farmer. Farmer waits all year until they get their harvest. They wait all year long. They plant that seed. It takes all year until they get the harvest. Or think about the prophets and all that they endured, all kinds of mistreatment, but now they're in their heavenly reward. It's an example of patience. And we need to be patient with one another. We need to be willing to wait for one another. Now on this this whole baptism thing that we're working through right now, I would, I would just encourage you to be patient with me as I seek to lead our church in a, in a biblical way. And I believe that, that I have been patient with you and I'm going to tell you right now, I'm, I'm committed to being patient with you and helping you to work through this. But once again, patience is a fruit of the Holy spirit. And really he alone can make us patient. He alone can, can help us to endure before we get angry. Well, a fifth requirement for a worthy walk is forbearance or tolerance. I called it number five here. A worthy life requires bearing with others. And we're still in Ephesians four, two, it says with all humility and gentleness with patience bearing with one another in love. Now, the first three words that we looked at, humility, gentleness, patience, they use the word with to connect them with walk. Here's how you should walk with all humility, with all gentleness and with patience. And now we're going to have two participles. We're going to have bearing with one another and literally being eager to preserve the unity of the spirit, or to maintain the unity of the spirit. And so, how do we walk in a manner worthy of our calling? Well, we walk with humility, with gentleness, with patience. And now we walk really by bearing with one another, and and by being eager to maintain the the, the unity of the spirit. And so, the idea is that we walk worthy by. Walking in these ways. And the first one here is by bearing with one another in love. And the word translated here, bearing, means to to take up or to bear up or to bear with or to put up with. I think that's something that we kind of do in English a little bit, to put up with something or someone, to endure something. And the thing that we're to endure, according to Paul here, is we're to endure one another. The Legacy Standard Bible and the New King James and the Christian Standard Bible are the same as what we have in the ESV, bearing with one another. The New American Standard Bible translates it, showing tolerance for one another in love. The Net Bible translates it, putting up with one another in love. Another English word I already mentioned that that fits here is the word forbearing, forbearing with one another. I want you to go to um, 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and i want to I want to show you how paul used this word over there so 1 corinthians chapter 4 what does it look like to bear with one another 1 corinthians 4:11 paul says to the present hour we hunger and thirst we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless and we labor working with our own hands When we, when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. And there's that word there right at the end. We endure in verse 12. And so when Paul and the apostles were persecuted, they endured. And the idea is they, they put up with it. They put up with it for Jesus Christ and they, they bore it and they, they tolerated the persecution for the sake of Christ. And if, if they tolerated persecution, then how much more should we be willing to tolerate one another, right? Even our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. You see, I, I highly doubt that any of us have fellow believers that we need to bear with who require the kind of tolerance, the kind of forbearance, the kind of endurance that was needed for Paul to face persecution, right? Right? But sometimes God puts people into our lives that, that we just need to bear. We need to, we need to put up with them. It might not even be a sin issue. You know, sometimes people just do things in a way that we don't prefer. Sometimes your spouse does things in a way that, that you don't prefer. Sometimes another brother and sister does something that, that you don't quite like. And again, it might not be a sin issue, but but sometimes people just don't do things in, in the way that we would like them to do them. Now, sometimes we're too sensitive, and sometimes others are are not sensitive enough. But whatever the reason, sometimes we just need to humbly and gently and patiently bear with people. Now, we're not called to bear with sin. We're called to bear with one another. And so we read Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And so we're not called to tolerate sin. At times we overlook it, but at times when it's serious, we need to confront it and we need to go and try to restore someone and help them to get out of their sin. We're also not called to tolerate doctrinal error. And we're going to see this in this series as we go through Ephesians 4. But we're going to see that God gives gifted teachers to build us up in the faith. And this is to happen according to chapter 4 and verse 13. And so let's let's go back to Ephesians 4. Look at verse 13. A few weeks we'll be looking at this passage. But he says, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of a God, to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that... We may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. You see, God has given us teachers so that we're not carried about by false doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, but rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. And so the idea here is that we are to speak the truth in love. We are to to teach sound doctrine and, and through that we grow to be like Christ. And so we don't tolerate doctrinal error. We don't tolerate sin, although there is a place to overlook it in grace for others, but we are to tolerate people. People who fall short of our expectations, people who still need to grow in maturity and Christ likeness. And the key to bearing with these people, as you see in the text, is is the, the word there, bearing with them in love. You see, love seeks to benefit others. Love lays down our life for the sake of others. And so love is the key to bearing with people. If we love them, we'll be patient with them. Love is patient. Love is kind. Now let's consider the opposite of bearing with one another in love. The opposite would be being quick to withdraw from somebody. The intolerant person severs a relationship with another believer. The intolerant person gives up. Intolerant person quits. Or worse, the intolerant person seeks vengeance when things don't go their way. And that is not worthy of our calling. You see, we ought to be the most gracious, most tolerant people in the world because we have been shown so much grace and God has borne with us so long. And then number six, a worthy walk, a worthy life requires diligent preservation of unity. And now we're in verse three. A worthy life requires diligent preservation of unity. Paul says in the ESV translation, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And really all that Paul has said in verses one and two leads to this kind of final thing, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. You see humility and gentleness, all humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with others. These are all things that promote and maintain unity. Whereas the opposites, arrogance, Pride, roughness, harshness, intolerance, those promote disunity, division, and conflict. Now I'm going to give you some of the various translations of this. Giving diligence, this being eager, being diligent, eager, spare no effort, take or, or make every effort, do your best. That's kind of the idea of this word. It means to, to hasten, this word to be eager. To hasten, to be zealous, to be eager, to make every effort. I can hear Jerry Bridges telling us that these are, are, strong, vigorous words. That's what he would kind of point out. These are, we're to, we're to work hard for this thing that's here. One commentator said the verb has an element of haste, urgency, or even a sense of crisis to it. Being eager, being diligent. And what we are to do, what are we what we are to be eager to do is to maintain the unity unity of the Spirit. And the idea is that we're to keep it, we're to preserve it, we're to protect it. And this unity that Paul describes is a unity that already exists. And so we're not to create unity. Our job is just to not lose the unity that we have. Don't wreck it. Instead, maintain it. And it's called the unity of the Spirit. And the idea is is that it's the unity that the Holy Spirit has produced. And so we might ask, well, when did the Holy Spirit produce unity? What, what is Paul talking about? Well, when he regenerated us and he baptized us into Christ, when, when he immersed us into the one new man, into the body of Christ, there was this unity that was created. In other words, this unity is a result of our common salvation. It's not a unity made by men, achieved by abandoning the truth or overlooking error or ignoring sin. No, this is a unity that's based on truth, and it's based on the truth of our common salvation in Christ. And we're gonna see this more clearly next week when we look at verses four to six, where it says there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And so this is a unity based on the triune God who saved us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which are all in, in that text in verses 4 to 6. Father, the, the Son, Lord there, and the Holy Spirit. And so it's a unity that's that's based on the one body of Christ It's based on the one hope of our calling, it's based on the one true faith, and it's based on the one immersion, which is the one baptism into Jesus Christ that we talked about last week. And we maintain this unity by relating with one another, as we've seen in the earlier verses. We maintain this unity by talking to one one another about offenses before they grow into bitternesses. We maintain this unity by being equipped for the work of ministry, verse 13 of chapter four, by doing the work of the ministry, verse 13, and by growing into Christ and speaking the truth in love in verses 14 to 16. And keeping this unity requires diligence because there's nothing the devil wants to do more than to divide the body of Christ and have us bitter and upset with one another. And so once again, I think it'll be helpful to kind of look at the opposite of this maintaining the unity. What's the opposite of maintaining the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace? Well, it would be breaking that unity, creating division or being divisive. It would be holding grudges. It would be gossiping or whispering. It would be being bitter with other people, other believers. It would be failing to eagerly pursue those who wronged you. Or who you feel have wronged you. The opposite of maintaining the unity of the spirit would be in severing relationships. Being hostile. Being difficult. Being angry. Or in some other way undermining peace and harmony in the body. Or even just lazily standing by when you should be eager to maintain this unity. You know, sometimes somebody will say, well, and they'll kind of excuse themselves. They'll say, well, I didn't do nothing. You know you, you can't blame this division on me cuz I didn't do nothing but that's the very problem right? Do you see that? The the problem is you weren't being eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. That's the command, not to just do nothing. And so when you see division in the body, you need to respond by eagerly creating unity and and helping the 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 divisive unit you know division causing person to see what they're doing. See, a divisive person sows doubt and suspicion. The Bible warns about the whisperer. The Bible warns about the person who will share their concern and grievance with everyone except the person who they are concerned about or the person who caused the grievance. And we're to beware of such people and beware of causing disunity among brethren. And, And it's something that God hates, according to Proverbs 6, 16 to 19. And we've seen already so far what God did to create unity. He saved us. He changed us. He He joined us into the body of Christ. He He joined us to the Lord Jesus Christ. He forgave our sins. He regenerated us by his power. He purchased us with his own blood. And for us to walk worthy of our salvation means that we maintain that unity that the spirit of God created by walking in peace with one another. And not just half-heartedly, but by, but eagerly and diligently. Well, in conclusion, I would say that, that this message, I, I would think, has, has really or should have hit us all at some point in this. You know, who's gonna say today that they have all humility or all gentleness? You know, is there a parent who, was perfectly patient with his children or her children this week. Or even I was thinking, how about just like this morning getting, getting ready for church? How about bearing with one another in love? You know, we have, we have so much to grow in this, but, but this is what we are to pursue if we want to glorify God in the church. To walk worthy of our calling requires these traits in our lives. And the the good news, the encouragement here this morning and I think this is just so awesome. This is what it means to walk worthy of our salvation and so the idea here is that our salvation is sufficient to enable us to put off the opposites that we saw today and to put on these Christ-like character traits. Our salvation is sufficient to enable us to walk with all humility, with all gentleness, with patience, to bear with one another in love and to be eager and diligent to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And that's a huge encouragement for me today. And for anyone who's here today who's not a believer, if you're here and and you're not a believer, you know, you can't do any of these things. You can't work walk worthy of your calling because you have no calling yet until you respond to the Lord Jesus Christ with repentance and faith. And so these things that you're looking at today as, as an unbeliever, they should show you that you need to be forgiven of your sins. All of these are, are sins against the Holy God and you need to be forgiven And you can be forgiven if you will turn from your sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the only way to have a relationship with God the Father. And so if you're here today and you're not a believer, I would urge you to turn from your sin and come to Christ. And then having done that, then pursue walking worthy of this calling in all of the ways that we've seen today. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. What a great text. What an encouragement to us. We pray, Father, that you would help us as a church and help us as individual believers to walk worthy of our calling. We thank you this morning for the calling with which you have called us, our great salvation, and we pray that you would help us to walk with all humility, with all gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, and that we would eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.